Oh, yes, we're at uh, Revelation 16 and the sixth bowl in the series of seven bowl judgments, this final series of judgments um, that, we, that we've come to now, set of, a set of seven. And uh, this morning we're going to be using a Revelation commentary, Simon Kistemacher, so that uh, I found, I, I was going through last night reviewing um, G.K. Beale Revelation, which is, of course, always excellent. But uh, he's very, very detailed and meticulous. And uh, if, if you want more detail, and it's particularly even more uh, insights into the Old Testament background and so forth. Beale's the, the guy to go to. So we use him sometime and so forth. But here, uh, Kistemacher was, was really clear, and, uh, and I think you'll find it uh, really helpful. So let's pray and begin. Father, thank you for another day. And thank you for another opportunity to look into your word. We pray that you would um, give us your spirit, that we might be taught by you and understand your word and encourage that our faith would be increased as we trust in Christ in these wicked days in which we live. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Yes, well, I hope that this study in Revelation is uh, encouraging everybody. And the fact of the matter is that, and I suppose to some degree, every Christian in every age would be able to say that they live in evil days, and, and the days are evil. And we, this is no exception now. We live in days when it seems like evil is on the increase, violence and so forth we have we have wickedness in high places evil corrupt people uh it seems like so often running the country it's probably been going on for longer than we would even like even like to think and so where are we at when we live in such times well we need to have our faith in Christ and his promises, which are sure and certain and uh, and never change. And someday, maybe very soon, he's coming back and and uh, he's going to once and for all set things right. And, and that's what we see here in this sixth and seventh bowl judgments here. So let's start off by just reading here. I'll back up to the fifth judgment, fifth angel, uh, 1610. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Remember, there's specifically a, a judgment upon uh, the Antichrist and his kingdom. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And, and of course, this repeated statement, they did not repent of their deeds. You know, even Pharaoh only temporarily, of course, but even Pharaoh repented, at least for temporarily, uh, when the plagues were coming upon Egypt and when there was darkness. But, but here you see that the intense evil that is in the world today in which it comes to, they did not repent of their deeds. All they do is curse God even more. The sixth angel poured out his bowl, on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Then a little parenthetical encouragement here. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. 
All right, we'll pause there then and, uh, and see what Kistemacher has to say here regarding this sixth, sixth bowl judgment. By the way, this is published by Baker Bookhouse, then, Baker Bookhouse. Um, <clears throat> this segment, he says, that is verses 12 through 16, mentions geographic areas, Armageddon, Babylon, eventually, and so forth, uh, and places including the river Euphrates. Uh, Babylon the Great appears in the next section after this. So here you've got physical things like um, the, the river Euphrates, a place called Armageddon or the Mount of Megiddo or uh, however you pronounce it, right? Um, and Babylon. Now here's the question. Are these names to be interpreted literally or figuratively? You know, how, that's always a challenge in the book of Revelation. When we, how do you look at these? And as we've said, if you go with the figurative approach and realize that, well, it's probably, John is probably not talking about the literal river Euphrates or um, perhaps even a literal place called Armageddon. But that does not mean, if we interpret these figuratively, this does not mean that we are denying that they're literally true in the sense that the figure or the symbol represents a real thing, all right? And I think oftentimes when we interpret uh, Revelation this way and we understand that the dragon's not a real dragon, and so on. The unclean spirits are like frogs. They're not some beings that literally exist, and uh, although they literally exist, but you see what I mean, that ha- actually have the appearance of, of frogs and so from giant frog-like creature or something, right? And But uh, oftentimes, and, uh, if we interpret figuratively, then the literalists, the wooden, stiff literalists, will accuse us of being, well, you know, you guys are these, these liberals, you, you, don't, you don't believe the Bible, you don't believe the Bible is literally true, and so on. And that's, a, that's just a false accusation. Um, whatever the river Euphrates, for instance, represents here is real. Whatever Armageddon represents is real. Whatever these frog-like, unclean spirits represent, they are real. And in this case, demonic spirits, John tells us. So, all right, well, with that in mind, then here's the question, right? Um, One is inclined, Kistemacher says, to say that from John's perspective, these are specific places and names that should be taken literally, okay, on the surface of it to be interpreted literally. So, for example, as always, there's an Old Testament background. The Old Testament prophets directly and indirectly predicted a drying up of the Euphrates and the waters of Babylon. All right, and so if you look, he gives references here. If you look in Isaiah 11, verse 50, well, let's just take the time to look at some of these. Um, Isaiah chapter 11, where do we go here, Uh, verse 15. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river, and that is the river Euphrates, with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. And so this highway, God's, this is speaking of God uh, allowing and bringing his people 
out of Babylon, out of the, this is the end of the captivity, bringing them back to, um, to the land of Israel. Also, he points us to Isaiah 44, verse 27. <clears throat> Check this out. Um, who, verse 26, who, talking about the Lord, confirms the word of his servants and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. who have been destroyed by the Babylonians. The remnant, Ezra, Nehemiah, and so forth, are going to rebuild it. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, now Cyrus was the king of Media Persia, and it was his kingdom that conquered, um, and you read about that in the, in the book of Daniel, it was uh, Cyrus and his kingdom that defeated and conquered Babylon, the Black Babylonian Empire. Remember the handwriting on the wall? And Daniel told, uh, was it Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, uh, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and this very night your kingdom is at an end. Well, that was the Medes and the Persians. <clears throat> so Cyrus came in, and Cyrus, in this sense, was the Lord's shepherd. He fulfilled the purposes of saying, he's, he's the one that gave the decree that the captives would be able to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Okay. And in connection with Cyrus and the defeat of Babylon, there's this drying up of the rivers theme uh, <clears throat> once again. And, and there's, there's others. Uh, well, here's another one. Jeremiah 50. All right. Jeremiah 50, verse 38. <clears throat> Here we go. A drought against her waters, that they may be dried up. For it is a land of images, and they are mad over idols. Therefore, wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon, and ostriches shall dwell in her. She shall never again have people, nor be inhabited for all generations. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities, declares the Lord. No man shall dwell there, and no son of man shall sojourn in her. Judgment upon Babylon, then, you see. <clears throat> and again, you have this drying up of the waters theme, a drought against Babylon's waters, that they may be dried up. Now, <clears throat> as Kistemacher notes, there's others too, by the way, if you want to look them up, Jeremiah 51, verse 36. Also, Zechariah 10, verse 11. Uh, those are also connected there. Now, as Kistemacher notes, this prophecy, these prophecies of the Euphrates being dried up in connection with the destruction of Babylon, uh, this prophecy was fulfilled in the days of Cyrus, <clears throat> king of Persia, who in 539 crossed the Euphrates with his army and defeated Babylon. Now, the, this, and then this Euphrates business is going to crop up again, as you see here, in, uh, in Revelation 16. Okay, um, Let's come back down to where we were here. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So just as Cyrus was able to cross the river Euphrates, whether the Lord had dried it up by a drought or something at the time, we don't know. But anyway, he crossed over and was able to defeat Babylon. And that Old Testament event becomes a type, a picture, a symbol then, of some more universal truth in connection with you know, what does the river Euphrates represent and, and the kings from the east and, and all of these kinds of things. Uh, now, he goes on and says, the name Armageddon, 
is the Hebrew equivalent of the Mount of Megiddo. I don't know, I never know how to pronounce this. M-E-G-I-D-D-O, Megiddo. It's hard to, maybe it's Megiddo. Who knows? I don't know. But anyway, but the problem is there's no mountain near that place. Uh, there's a flat plain there where apparently, historically, there's been a lot of battles. The plain of Estralon and, and so on. And so, um, do we interpret these geographical places literally? Is this the literal river Euphrates that's going to be dry, dried up? Um, what about these unclean spirits? And what about um, verse 16? They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So there's the question. Well, <clears throat> uh, Kistemacher selects a figurative explanation, and he gives several reasons why he does. Um, first of all, the Euphrates River, and apparently, see, we've seen this before in Revelation. Let's go back to uh, chapter 9, and it's verse uh, 14 here, 914. <clears throat> well, I'll start in 13. And then the sixth, and remember there's parallels between the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments, and that's what you see here. Uh, the sixth bowl talks about the drying up of the river Euphrates. Well, here you have the sixth angel and the sixth trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops, this is interesting because over in chapter 16 here, the sixth bowl, we have this vast army, the kings of the east. Well, here you have an army too. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard, I heard their number. And so there's that, <clears throat> that judgment there. Um, but you can see then that somehow or other, the river, well, I missed it here just a minute. Uh, the river Euphrates is appearing in the book of Revelation as a, a figure, as a symbol representing some kind of a boundary, right? So Kistemacher says, the Euphrates was considered to be a boundary dividing east and west. This, the, the river was, okay, the physical, geographical river. <clears throat> but this barrier has now been removed so that destructive forces can advance unhindered from place to place and cause the fall of Babylon the Great. Now what happens here is that then these Old Testament events like Cyrus coming and crossing the river Euphrates. Um, anything, just pick anything, the plagues of Egypt and so forth. Um, they were uh, most often literal, historic, geographical, earthly events. Okay, But God ordained them and uses them as a picture of something bigger. And so you'll hear, for instance, uh, guys like G.K. Beale, I don't know if Kistemacher does or not, they'll use a term called universalizing. Okay, so they'll say, all right, in the book of Revelation, in the judgments, in, in the plagues in the book of Revelation, we have as a background the plagues of Egypt in Moses' day, the literal plagues, literal darkness, literal locusts, and so forth. And so you have those events. But then in, in Revelation, um, John universalizes those plagues. They become a, a bigger thing, right? A, a worldwide thing, a cosmic thing um, that really is the... Actually, if you think about this, the universalized plagues, the worldwide plagues, the 
Pharaoh of the Old Testament becomes in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation who? The dragon, Satan, oppressing God's people. A bigger, a universal um, thing. And, and again, if you think about this, it is the universal thing, the bigger thing, that is actually the real thing. Right? It's, it's the thing that in the Old Testament, those pictures and types were always pointing to. And you can, you can take that in just about anything that the Old Testament is serving as an image of. The Messiah, the cross, all, all of these kinds of things. The Exodus, crossing the Red Sea, uh, God parting the water. By the way, it, it's always God... I think Kistemacher mentions this. It's always God that dries up the water. Um, you have it back in, right in the beginning, in Genesis, in creation. God separated the waters, right? And the dry land appears. Um, he's the one that dries up the waters, and he's the one that causes the waters to overflow, the dry land, the flood, Noah's flood and judgment. When God dries up the waters, be it the Red Sea, be it the Euphrates River, it is always for either the redemption of his people or judgment upon the enemies of God's people. In the case of the Exodus, the waters came back and wiped out Pharaoh and his, and his armies. And usually it's both, right? Crossing of the Red Sea, redemption of God's people, but also judgment then um, uh, upon the wicked. But you see the, you see the point. Um, the Jews went wrong in this very regard. They thought that the Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant was the thing, was the end in itself. They didn't get, because they didn't want to get, apparently, they didn't get the fact that the shadows and types of the Old Testament were just that, shadows and types. But the reality is to be found in Christ and in, in, the, new, and in the new covenant. So here when we have the sixth angel pouring out his bowl on the river Euphrates, we would expect that Old Testament river Euphrates now to be representing something more universal something bigger that affects uh, the, the entire creation let's see what else he has to say here um, <clears throat> the Euphrates river was considered to be a boundary dividing east and west this barrier has now been removed so that destructive Forces can advance unhindered from place to place and cause the fall of Babylon the Great. And that Babylon the Great becomes the world, the kingdom then of the, of the Antichrist. So it seems like already we're starting to see the river Euphrates, the literal geographical river Euphrates, the way that it served as a boundary between east and west tells us that, that really there is a Euphrates River that um, is, essentially it is the, the sovereign hand of God, a line drawn, you might say, that God draws, that until he lifts that line, until he lifts that barrier, the kings of the east and so forth can't cross, that, that that aspect of God's decreed plan cannot come about until the time when he decrees, okay, River Euphrates, dry up. You know, that is the, the, the way, is, the way is, is open now, all right? Uh, he says also, uh, in Revelation, the name, remember now, he's given reasons here why we're taking things uh, figuratively rather than literally. Uh, um, 
in Revelation, the name of Babylon the Great. So how are we to take Babylon the Great as John's talking about it here? In Revelation, in the book of Revelation, the name of Babylon the Great is not a localized place, but consistently it is a symbol of the anti-Christian world power that lasts until the end of cosmic time. All right, whenever we see Babylon here in Revelation, uh, just as Babylon in the Old Testament was this empire that oppressed the people of God, so now when we see it coming up again here in Revelation, it is represented with that entire anti-God, anti-Christian world power, world system, all right? And so that's what's going to be destroyed. He also says, in chapter 17, there will be an explanation provided of Babylon. And Babylon there is, um, is pictured as a great prostitute who sits on many waters. This is still another way of referring to the Euphrates and its waters. John interprets these waters to be peoples, crowds, nations, and languages. And, uh, and so these words in chapter 17 are an explanation of the expressions Euphrates and Babylon. So we're going to see that even more in chapter 17, where obviously the Euphrates and Babylon are not literal geographical places, but they represent something that is literal. Now he says also, in connection with the drying up of the Euphrates, this is functioning as a symbol to allow anti-Christian forces to go to war by deceiving, if possible, even Christians. Three evil spirits go out to gather the kings of the whole world. All right, you see this three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Now these these three unclean spirits like frogs are real. They are demonic spirits. Now, why, why is it that um, uh, the Lord, speaking through John, chose to represent these demonic spirits as uh, unclean spirit-like frogs? How come? Well, again, that goes back to the plagues of, the, of Egypt in Moses' day, right? There was a plague of frogs, frogs everywhere, which was a judgment, I think Kistemakerel named the goddess, I forget the goddess's name, but then, you know, the Egyptians were full bore uh, idolaters, sun god, Ra, and so on. That's why there was darkness, it's a judgment. All of the, all the plague judgments of Egypt, each one of them was a judgment by God against a particular false god of Egypt. And in this case, they, they worshipped some frog goddess of some kind. And, uh, and so it was a judgment um, against them. But here they're demonic spirits. They're instruments of Satan via the false prophet, performing signs. And they deceive the king's kings, the kingdoms of the world, they deceive them to gather them together for destruction, for the final, for final judgment. So um, that he goes on here, the three evil spirits go out to gather the kings of the whole world to battle. And believers receive a warning to stay awake and not be caught unprepared. That's in verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, 
just a note here. You probably remember in, uh, I've got it up on the shelf there, in Herman Hoxima's commentary on Revelation, Behold, He Cometh. Uh, Hoxima uh, says that, and I, and I think I'm representing him okay here, by this time, by these final judgments, there aren't any Christians left in the world. God has removed them all or they've been killed. That you're, But you can see that, that gets to be a little bit, uh, maybe Hoxima has further explanation on that, but, but here you see that clearly there are still Christians in the world at this time because he's encouraging them. He's encouraging us, right? Uh, this is for us as well. He's coming as a thief. Stay awake. Don't get careless. Don't get sucked in by the kingdom of, of darkness. Be ready. Be ready for when, when Christ comes because he's coming. He's coming. Don't be, don't, don't be discouraged. And everything is falling out exactly as God has decreed. It looks like, here's, you know, here's these vast armies Whatever that's going to look like, it's the Antichrist world system that appears like it's on the verge of victory in stamping out completely the church. But it's not going to work. What in fact is happening is God is using demons, he's using Satan and his servants to deceive the, the wicked nations of the world to deceive Babylon into, you know, they, they're thinking they're going to gather together and look at us, you know, kind of like, like Babel restored. Um, nothing can stop them. But in fact, what's really going on is God's gathering them together to destroy them once and for all. Kind of reminds you of, uh, was it King Ahab? And so he's meeting with the other king. I can't remember the name. Jehoshaphat. I don't. Anyway, back in the Old Testament, and uh, he wants to know. Oh, remember Micaiah, the, the the godly prophet, and Ahab has him imprisoned. Doesn't he? Doesn't like what um, Micaiah has to say because. Micaiah, of course, is a true prophet, and he always speaks the word of God, and it always goes against Ahab. But um, the other king says, well, bring him and let's hear from him. And uh, he prophesies that Ahab is going to be um, killed and, and defeated in that battle. But, but also in connection with that same event, if I remember right, there was the Lord saying, well, who, who will go out? I, I, you know, I desire to kill Ahab. Who will go out and deceive him? And then there's this, this spirit, which apparently is a demonic one that comes and says, well, I'll go. So it's God using Satan, using that spirit to affect the destruction of this wicked king, which, which he does. God uses Satan always. Satan thinks he's so smart, right? But he doesn't make a single... He thought he was so great when he was uh, leading Judas to betray Christ and <clears throat> cause Christ to be arrested and put to death on the cross. And well, you know the outcome of, of that story. <clears throat> and it's the same today. As evil as the world looks, God is in perfect control. He's using all of these wicked kingdoms and kings and leaders to further and carry out his, his purpose exactly. And that's what we see <clears throat> here in this deception of, of the kings. Uh, this drying up of the Euphrates is like all restraints and obstacles have now been removed so that the ungodly forces can do their destructive work. Um, the moral code of God's law has ceased to influence society at large. 
and the mystery of lawlessness is at work <clears throat> in full force. So it seems like this drying up of the Euphrates here in this sixth bowl judgment represents God removing that restraint, that barrier that prevents the kingdom of Antichrist and the wicked kingdoms of the world from uniting together and coming against his church, which is really coming against Christ. And <clears throat> but he's purposely allowing this now. And in the future, there's going to come a time where he allows and he God removes that restraint. <clears throat> And they're able to come for this great final battle. And they're just sure. They're just sure that they're going to win. They're going to stamp out the name of Christ once and for all from this world. And of course, what's really happening is God has deceived them. And he's bringing them together so he can wipe them out once and for all. <clears throat> so here now, Kistemacher goes on here. Now, that was just kind of an overview. So he's saying we take these figures figuratively. That's the right way to interpret them. And now he's going to move in for more detail. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up so that a road of the kings of the east was prepared. I was reading his uh, translation there. The ESV has... The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Okay, Now, this verse echoes the account of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Only it's in reverse. This is a, a parting of the waters of Euphrates so that the wicked can come across. I guess it's not totally uh, in reverse because God is using the parting of the waters as judgment as part of his judgment upon them. But just the Egyptian army tried to cross the Red Sea but drowned while the Israelites safely crossed. But now John reveals that the kings of the east will use the dry bed of the Euphrates as a road to continue their travels unimpeded by a natural barrier. But he doesn't indicate that the eastern kings actually invade the west. Now, <clears throat> again, there's historic events that, that uh, Cyrus and so forth crossing over the river Euphrates. But but John is telling us something greater here. John provides a clue for us with his reference to the kings of the whole world being gathered by evil spirits for battle. Right? This means that both the kings of the east and the kings of the world are forces pitched against Christianity in vain, these two seek to achieve the same purpose, namely, the overthrow, then, of the church. They're marching against, uh, against Christ. What does this mean? It means that, that the kingdom of Antichrist, Satan's kingdom, is going to be permitted to join together in some kind of final, mighty force with the intent of once and for all erasing Christ from, from, from the earth so that they never have to hear of this troublesome God then uh, once, uh, anymore, right? That's what's happened. So we, we're moving every day, you know, we're moving closer and closer and closer to that time, to that event then. Um, he, look at verses 13 and 14 again. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast 
and out of the mouth of the false prophets. See here, false trinity, right? Three unclean spirits like frogs. They are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So here is God once again using Satan and his servants to deceive, deceive them into, uh, into marching into this battle. Let's see what Kistemacher has to say here. Satan now produces a parody of God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. The dragon, Satan, opposes God. The beast comes up out of the sea as Antichrist, against Christ. And the false prophet, as the beast, comes up out of the earth in the place of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I guess it might have been Beale that mentioned this. This is the first time in Revelation that the second beast is actually called the false prophet. That gives us real insight into his function. He's the one that that Satan uses, the Antichrist uses, to deceive the world and worship the image of the beast. And, uh, and you see here, he's given, and these demonic spirits are given uh, <clears throat> the ability to perform signs even, right? These false miracles. Everything, everything designed then to, uh, to deceive. The phrase out of the mouth of occurs three times and should be understood symbolically as speech coming forth in triple form. Out of the mouths of the trinity of dragon, beast, and false prophet pours forth a barrage of lies and deceit. This is one of the reasons then in verse 15, Jesus parenthetically tells his church, um, stay awake. Stay awake. Keep your garments on. Don't be deceived. Um, because the deception is going to increase um, even more. Now he talks about uh, the frogs here and, um, and why it was that God um, selected the image of frogs. Three unclean spirits like frogs. Frogs, in as far as uh, Old Testament dietary restrictions, were considered an unclean beast. So uh, frog legs are pretty good, but the Jews couldn't couldn't eat them. It was they were they were unclean, and uh, and so all the more important <clears throat> that in these evil days and increasingly, because Satan's deceptions are going to increase. It's all the more important for us as Christ's people uh, to, to really be diligent about um, faithfully reading, studying, hearing God's word, God's truth, right? People who claim to be Christians, but they're lazy in regard to... Um, even just reading their Bible or, you know, really giving heed to, giving themselves to understanding God's Word so that they won't be deceived. Well, they're going to get deceived. There will be lots and lots and lots of people who claim to be Christians, but they will be, they will fall for the lies of the Antichrist. And, um, of course, you see that happening day, professing Christians, just embracing whatever woke nonsense is coming down along the way, no matter how crazy it is and insane it is, they, they're going to choose to uh, believe it and they're exposed then for what they really are. You know, I was thinking about this last week that, um, uh, is, is it an exaggeration to say most people who claim to be Christians are not Christians. And the more I thought about it, you know, I think you can, uh, I know that you can, you can um, support that statement biblically. 
most people, not just many, but most people who claim to be Christians are not Christians. They're not saved. They're not God's people. So um, let's think about this. All right. Jesus says that on that day when he comes again, many will come to me on that day and they'll say what? Well, they're professing Christians. We've done all these great things, man. We were pillars in, our, in, in your church and so forth. And depart from me, I never, I never knew you. So you, you have that. But also the whole you know, idea of, uh, well, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, are there few that are going to be saved? And, and essentially his answer is, that's right. There's few that are going to be saved. And uh, there's a broad way. Many people travel that. And there's a narrow way. And few are they who find it. And that nails it down, doesn't it? Few are they who find it. Most people who claim to be Christians. Think of the, think, just go on out through the whole world. Uh, everything that calls itself the Christian church. Rome. Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian, or the Orthodox churches, liberal churches. Liberal is the Church of of England, which is vastly, vastly um, uh, apostate. I guess you'd call that now. Um, and those are just that doesn't even include then the evangelical Protestant churches in which we know that so many people in those, in those churches are not, are not born again then at all. I was writing down this morning some topics. I got three of them here uh, for blog posts that I, that I want to write. One of them is um, narcissists in the church, false, false, wicked, so-called Christians, invisible local churches, and their effect on our children. So, for instance, if you were to take, kind of on a rabbit trail here, but if you were to take, let's say you live back in the Apostle John's day, and your local church, you lived in Laodicea, or maybe you lived in Pergamum, or some of these other places, um, five out of the seven churches that you see in Revelation 2 and 3 had serious problems. Laodicea was that close to not even being a church at all. But, uh, you know, to one of them, I don't remember exactly which one it was, but anyway, to one of them it was, I have this against you. You, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, and she's leading my bondservants astray. And, and, and I command you to, to deal with her. I'm, I'm coming, I'm going to kill her and her followers and, and so forth. Well, so let's say that you, okay, you want to be faithful. So on Sunday, you take the family and take your kids and that's your church. Well, what are they going to be exposed to there? Might be some people that are Christians, but they're going to be exposed to Jezebel and to wickedness and this gets gets you to thinking about well what does the true church look like when we think of churches today you know we think of uh, a big brick building on the corner with white pillars and so forth the the bible belt is filled with those kind of structures and your standard uh you know here here's the pastor with his phd in theology and and uh, active in the in the denomination and all of these activities and things that are going on but what happens when you take your family to so many of those kind of places what happens to them if it's if it is not the true church you are actually exposing yourself and your children to antichrist and, and that danger, as we see here in Revelation, is increasing, and it's going to get worse. These are demonic spirits, and, and I think we'll get to, we, don't, we won't even finish the sixth bowl today, we're out of time, but 
But uh, um, one of the main targets of Satan has always been, the, the, the arena that he wants to deceive the most in is in local churches. That's where he, that's where he is active. So we better stay awake and we better be wise to these kinds of things. And we need to stop this nonsense of worshiping the big. You know, we're going to worship the big. That's big. Oh, how come your church is so small? How come there's so many, you know, boy, there must be something really wrong. That's how out of whack professing Christians thinking has then become today. You know, I, sometimes I, I think, you know, what am I going to say the next time? The next time somebody visits our church or something, how, well, boy, how come you don't have more people here? You know, it's like, you, know, you, you can't shake them. That probably is not going to go over real well. But, uh, but it's like, where have you been? Don't you re ever read your Bible? That wouldn't be a bad response. What do you mean, why do we have so many few people? Don't you ever read your Bible? And uh, Well, anyway, we better stop right there. And we need to pick up, some, and we'll get some more info from Hendrickson next time on this uh, sixth bowl judgment, maybe get into the seventh one as well. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your spirit who guides and directs us. And we pray that we would listen. And we would always entrust our way to you and not set out each day uh, on our own without even thinking about the way you would have us go. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.